my favorite phrase, you got to slow down to speed up, just making sure that they have what they need to contribute to the team 100%. I do feel that if you give your engineers like autonomy and basically not handholding them, empowering them, making sure that they have the confidence to make certain decisions, especially with their stories and pushing them to take ownership of their own work. You really don't need to be managing them too much. Take a step back, provide support when needed, make sure that they have everything that they need. But at the end of the day, they are seniors, they are engineers who are capable of making those decisions. So allow them to make them and just be there to support them. There's always going to be the OCD of, for me at least, you know, I want to refactor it. I want to change it. I, I found a better way of doing it. Oh, this doesn't make sense. We have to find the balance of, yes, finding the right way of doing something is ideal, but we also have our commitments to the company. We have to make sure our features are deliverable. We have to make sure that we don't introduce too much scope creep, too much tech debt. Hi, I'm Maria, and this is the Agile State of Mind. Welcome. And we are here in the podcast edition where I deconstruct the role of an engineering manager, try to make sense of the role confusion and understand the challenges of the transition from a developer to a leader. You can find this interview both on YouTube and as a podcast. See the links in the description. And today my guest is a colleague from Philo, Brandon Harrod. Hello, Brandon. How are you? Hi. How are you doing? I'm <laughs> good. Great to have you here. So Brandon is a full-stack developer. You are a full-stack developer, aren't you? Yes, I'd say I'm a full-stack developer. <laughs> and you recently got promoted to be a team lead. So again, we will witness a success story of an engaged and collaborative developer that is moving forward in his career. And Brendan and I work together right now, and it's for the second time because we previously worked together in OutSystems, and then we both um, followed Robert to go to Philo. I will need to interview Robert Husick as well, soonish, let's see one. Philo, where we work right now, is an American startup headquartered in Chicago, and we provide marketing and regulatory solutions to highly regulated businesses like cannabis and CBD dispensaries, cryptocurrencies, short-term rentals, and so on. And currently, Brandon is a team lead for our US-based team. So. I'm very glad to have you here. I would like to understand today a little bit about your journey from a developer to a leader and also understand like what are the challenges of the moving onto the new role? What did you really like as a, as a developer and so on? So I would like to start from from the developer role, actually, because I noticed with my previous guests that there's a little bit of confusion about the, what the full stack means. I was speaking with Luis Castro in my first interview, and he was explaining that to him, a full stack developer is like a real product developer, that it doesn't only mean that you're good in the technical side, but also understanding the product, well, collaborating with the UXers and so on. So I would like to understand what you understand. That's a hard one. Okay. <laughs> Starting with hard questions. Interesting. So he was mentioning that a full stack engineer was more of like a product engineer, you know, not just, you know, front end, back end, understanding databases or caching layers or infrastructure. He was mentioning that a full stack engineer in his mind was the whole product understanding, like the stakeholders view of the product all the way to, you know, delivering the product, right? 
Yeah, yeah. But basically, you need to understand the business and understand what the product owner does and some tools that UXer does. And then also, let's say the BI part. So you know what you will actually measure in what you're actually doing. So it changes a little bit the way you look at things. So my point of view on a full stack engineer, it, it's a little bit different. I, I would say one of the major things about a full stack engineer is understanding of course, the deliverables of the whole product from all, you know, from the design sessions with PMs all the way to, you know, implementation and deployment of it. My point of view of full stack engineer is not just understanding what the product is. It's more along the lines of how can I touch every layer of the engineering stack to deliver a feature or a product to the customers? What that entails in my mind is a full stack engineer needs to understand one is the UI, the UX of the platform. How is the user going to interact? How is the actual product going to be used within the industry? But then also the implementation of it all the way from the front end to if you're using JavaScript, you know, the NPM modules that you're pulling in to the back end layer API uh, implementation and into even the orch orchestration of, you know, the platform CICD deploying it to either AWS, Azure, or, you know, GCP, and then how are you going to actually maintain it, continuous integrate and deploy um, the platform. So in my mind, a full stack engineer understands at least at some level, the whole pipeline from the design step all the way to the deployments step. Okay. Makes Did sense. I answer? Yeah. 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 You answered. And I think this is what I always understood as a full stack developer. So I would like to ask you, is there actually a full stack developer that knows all of what you just mentioned? Or do we, people usually have some affinity that they are more, they are better at front end or they are better at back end? Truthfully, in my opinion, no, there's no such thing as a full stack engineer. I, I feel like your, your strong suit is either front end, back end infrastructure. The term full stack engineer really just means software engineer developer in my mind a developer is someone who specializes in a certain language focusing on a specific domain be it front end back end apis databases like very domain specific and that would be in my mind a developer like a software developer now when i think of a full stack engineer that's a software engineer because you're thinking of it as a as a whole engineering perspective of how does all the pieces fit together? How do, you know, once I build out a certain feature, how do I deploy it? How do I test it? How do I integrate it? A full stack engineer to me, yeah. The engineering principles coming together. And I like the term software engineer because you're building software, you're building a platform as a whole and not focusing on a specific domain. And do you have any preference yourself? I'm a software engineer. Yeah. At the end of the day, I mean, my title at Philo is a software engineer. I'm not a full stack engineer, but I feel like they're, the terms are interchangeable and it depends on the company you go to. Truthfully, a full stack engineer is just a way for a company to be like, hey, you need to do all of it without hiring people focused in certain areas. All right. It's good to have these different opinions. It's good to also understand that even if we say full stack, we, it doesn't mean that you have to be great in everything. Yeah, you understand the, the software lifecycle. You understand mm. how all these technologies piece together a general idea of what I need to do to deliver a full-on product and not just be siloed in front end and be like, oh, well, I need to make a change to the API, but I don't know how to touch that mm -hmm. API or how to how to make those changes on the back end. Now let's go to your transition. It has been not so long ago, I think like two months ago that you became... June 1st, yeah. June, June 1st. I believe so, yeah. 
Okay, that's a nice day <laughs> to remember. So yeah, you became a team lead. And because I understand you are a passionate software developer. So how was that for you? What would you say are the challenges? Because, you know, in this podcast, I would like to let some developers mm-hmm. know who are thinking about maybe changing to become a manager of other people. And they consider like, okay, what does it actually mean? What are the challenges? What will I have to sacrifice to be a leader? Yeah. So before before I was offered the role as team lead for the U.S. Uh, Philo team, you know, I was already doing about 70% IC and, you know, not doing the management management uh, duties yet. But um, what, what was happening was, you know, I was participating in a lot of meetings, you know, making sure that there was a collaboration between teams, making sure that you know, we're following the best practices during like code reviews and making sure that we are doing our due diligence when deciding on new technologies, new design patterns or new implementations. So to me that, yeah, that's a senior or principal engineer type dude, like responsibilities. But then when I transitioned into the team lead role, it shifted to still doing, you know, 70% IC, but then, you know, the other 30% uh, doing management duties, such as one-on-ones, performance re- I kind of got thrown into uh, the team lead position during mid-year reviews, so I had to do that since I've been working with the team already since January. I would say the, not a shock factor, but the difference was getting more personal with your colleagues. Now that I'm doing one-on-ones, you know, understanding their work-life uh, balance and their, not issues, but their concerns or the difficulties that they're having, you know, within the team or within the organization and trying to juggle still completing 70% IC work, trying to contribute to our sprint velocity while also juggling um, the needs of the team and making sure that they're getting the resources that they need or the help or just making sure that they have what they need to contribute to the team 100%. And for me, that really slowed me down in my own sprint velocity because I have to reach out to multiple teams, making sure that we're still collaborating with PMs and everyone. And if they have any type of issues with their sprint work, helping them get unblocked and helping them. I keep coming back to this one word, but you know, everything that they need to accomplish what they need to accomplish. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, makes sense. But I'm actually surprised that you said that, let's say, administrative work is just 30% and 70% is still like a software developer role. Did I understand that correctly? Yes. I feel like we do quick 20-minute one-on-ones each week. Mm -hmm. I do feel that if you give your engineers like autonomy and basically not hand-holding them, empowering them, making sure that they have the confidence to make certain decisions, especially with their stories and pushing them to take ownership of their own work, you really don't need to be managing them too much in my experience. I've come from out systems where I felt micromanaged. I came from Fordruck where I was very empowered and at Fordruck, really, we had the ability to make certain decisions, architectural decisions, implementation decisions, and just by us having the runway to do what we know is best and pulling in the best technology, the best design principles, we always made the right decision with our implementation and making sure that we're delivering high quality code and making sure that it's maintainable and scalable. So that that's the approach that I've been trying to take is more take a step back, provide support when needed, make sure that they have everything that they need. But at the end of the day, they are seniors, they are engineers who are capable of making those decisions. So allow them to make them and just be there to support them. Wow. I love that. It's great. Yeah. And especially the part of empowering other people 
And I see that a lot on the daily basis because I, we work together and the team is pretty new, right? The team itself, I think they started last year. Yeah, I think Harry, Harry and Carlos have been here the longest. They were here about like six or so months before I got here in January. But everyone else on the team right now, we're a team of uh, six and then seven, including me. Yeah, have been here basically just around January of 2022. So we can say that the team is half a year old <laughs> and yeah. you can see really how great people are coming together, uh, participating, collaborating. And this is really great that you notice that and you step back and let them self-organize. What I see a lot that sometimes some team leads would just go and micromanage people because they just don't know any other way. And also people are maybe sometimes used to that they are told what to do. Mm -hmm. I don't know if it's also the cultural thing that, you know, everybody that you manage, they are all from the States and they are all in remote, right? So there is no office yep. that any, everybody can go to and just see each other. I think most of the people never saw each other in, in real life, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, we never met. <laughs> yeah, which is amazing that you can still pull this off. And this also shows how things changed after COVID, right? That we would mm -hmm. never think about this. Well, there were teams like GitLab and all the Basecamp and so on that they were always preaching the distributed team setup, but it felt so utopian to me. And right now here we are, right? Uh, in this totally yeah. remote and people still come together and collaborate. Yeah, absolutely. And I've been working remote now for about four years, even before COVID, the engineering teams that I've had that I've been on that were mostly remote engineers, in my opinion, always had, I mean, it really depends on the person and their personality, but for the most part, when working remote, being able to have the flexibility of if, if in between meetings, I'm, you know, washing dishes and then I come back, you know, I, I feel like people take more ownership over, over their stuff. It's also going back to ownership, you know, not micromanaging, you know, like if, if, if I'm constantly reaching out, Hey, you know, what's the status of the story? What's the status of this, this other story kind of slows people down. Like one of the things that I really enjoy about engineering is that we're on a three-week sprint cycle. At, at the end of the day, as long as your your commitments get done and we, at the start of the sprint, we commit to a certain amount of deliverables, as long as we deliver what we commit to for that sprint, it doesn't really matter how or when you complete those individual tasks, as long as we are delivering on our commitment each sprint. And I feel like, yeah, now that like the last like three sprints, right? The, or like mm -hmm. last two sprints, we actually been delivering almost our full commitment other than like some other like little issues uh, that, yeah, I think we need that to solve, but, but they're outside of our team. I was very surprised because we started working together, like looking more closely at the processes recently. And what you just said, the, I've never seen such perfect burndown charts as in your team. So we are doing some changes, right? The, the, I think the stories get smaller and the epics get smaller and the team really starts collaborating better that mm -hmm. you can really see this in the metrics, not only that we feel we're doing better, right? But the yeah. metrics speak for that. And it's, it is really great for me to know that you can really have this kind of well-performing team even though they never, nobody ever met and everybody's just working remotely. Yeah. And another thing that this last sprint that I've been trying to do is, you know, I, I've been saying this in my one-on-ones lately, um, you got to slow down to speed up. I've been really like trying to make sure that the team is working on stuff that they find interesting. Harry specific, you know, he's pushing to become a senior engineer and he, uh, he understands that he lacks front end knowledge and 
the really in-depth uh, React experience. So one of the things that I noticed is that by having him take on more front-end things, it slows him down in, in the sense of what he can commit during the whole sprint, his velocity. But in the end, it speeds him up because he's getting more knowledge about the other domains of the product. And two, he actually finds it intriguing. He's motivated to make sure that he doesn't fail. As self-taught, you know, not going to school for engineering, my point of view is, if you can find something that interests you, motivates you, you're never going to not complete it. You're always going to make sure, you know, even if it takes you a day longer, you're going to make sure you're going to do it the correct way. You're going to make sure that you complete it by the end of the sprint because you're motivated and find it very interesting to do. I mean, that's where my OCD comes to, comes in. I'm like, you know, I just want find something that's interesting and then I will do anything and everything possible to make sure I implement it correctly using that technology. Okay, I have two things here. So I will start yeah. with the first one. I noted that. I really like what you're saying. So you try to understand the developers that are in your team beyond just work, right? What really motivates them and try to respond like, okay, if this motivates you, why don't you just do more of this? Even though it will slow us down in short term, in the long run, we will have a real full stack developer, right? Yeah. yeah. And on top of that, you know, if someone's doing something that they are not enjoying, they're going to get burnt out. They're not going to deliver high quality code there. It's just going to be mundane. And in the end, it's not going to be good for the company. We're going to have a burnt out engineer who's, you know, potentially going to start looking to leave. And they're not going to be doing their best work because it doesn't interest them anymore. Yeah, I think that's very important. The inspirational, aspirational part, like that mm -hmm. in the motivation. So how do we make sure that we deliver on time and we deliver with quality, but we don't get people burned down in the process, right? Yep. So keeping people motivated and Letting them work on what they consider interests them, I think, is a very great way to do so. And then I also, I started laughing when you mentioned the OCD. And you are not the first developer that I meet that has some OCD. So do you think that actually helps in the role, software developer? Yes and no. <laughs> uh, I love the pod. <laughs> yes, because it would make the engineer more likely to try to find the right way to do things, you choose, you know, the best technology, the best design pattern, the best way to make something work where I, there, and the, this comes back to like the, there, there's a balance, right? There's, you have to have enough OCD. I, I don't like to say OCD. I think it's just more of like being intrigued mm -hmm. to implement something, you know, correctly. But then where I feel like it hinders us is, you know, we kind of have to put blinders up, course blinders, like, we can all, I can go for days and be like, oh, I found a better way of doing something and then yeah. start implementing it that way and then go, oh, I found another way. There's, as a full stack engineer, depending on the language you're, you're using and what technologies, there is multiple ways to do something. So there's always going to be the OCD of, for me at least, you know, I want to refactor it. I want to reach, I want to change it. I, I found a better way of doing it. Oh, this doesn't make sense. We have to find the balance of, yes, finding the right way of doing something is ideal, but we also have, you know, our commitments to the company. We have to make sure our features are deliverable. We have to make sure that we don't introduce too much scope creep, too much tech debt, you know, and. So find that yeah, perfect it, balance between. We have to find the balance. Hacking and <laughs> doing some yeah. hacks and actually refactoring everything over and over because it's never perfect, right? Exactly. But then it also comes back to, you know, my, I have a very strong opinion about this is that 
that problem can be solved if we introduce a design phase into sprints or epics or seasons or however you want to phrase it. It's my favorite, my favorite phrase. You got to slow down to speed up. You have to take a step back, design, understand what you're trying to build, understand future desires from the company, wants from the customers, and actually try to build a solid foundation so that you can speed up and you can build out this product how you want. And you can take the time to say, hey, how do we do it correctly? Because if you just implement, if you get like a set of requirements for a new feature when the sprint starts, next sprint, I'm going to want to redo it because next sprint I'm getting, you know, requirements that I had no idea, you know, three weeks prior. And I'm like, well, if you just told me all the requirements for the next six months, I could have designed it in such a way that could grow and easily implement all the features that you would want down the road. Well, I don't know if it's possible that anyone can give you all the requirements for the next six months, but I get the point that it's better to see some long run and long term to not redo something that you just did. I would like to understand how do you do that? Like, what do you do to implement this design state? This is also something that in our company, many teams are now brainstorming. Like, Mm -hmm. should we have some kind of guild where we share the implementation of what we're going to do next? Or should we have like a design document? What's the scope? Like, should we have it for every small task, which probably doesn't make sense? Because in your case, it comes like naturally in your team. It's like emergent and you just, Mm -hmm. and I would like to understand how do you do this? It's hard because, you know, there's a lot of coordination you have to do with PMs to understand the requirements from, from product. On our team, what we've been trying to do is we're trying to do backlog refinement each week, you know, trying to get eyes onto stories as soon as possible before we get to sprint planning, before we start, you know, doing story pointing. Get engineers' eyes on these stories, I would say a sprint in advance so that we can start gathering technical details. We can start, you know, figuring out what is the best way to implement this feature, what are other design considerations or gotchas that we will find during the sprint, which, you know, ultimately slows us down. I guess I could say, if I step back, you know, all the questions for the engineer should be answered before sprint starts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, you know, that, that means architectural, that means, you know, yeah, we can't plan six months in advance, but we can plan epics. We can plan full on features. Like we don't have to know what the future holds. We just need to know for this given feature that we want to implement, let's say that feature will take us, you know, three sprints to implement, we should spend a sprint, let's say it takes four sprints to actually implement because we spend a sprint planning that epic out, planning that feature out, understanding all the requirements, understanding all the infrastructure change, all the, whatever we need to do, we just need to slow down, look at the requirements, plan it out, and then start writing the code. And then speed up. (laughs) And then ultimately you will speed up. We won't have a lot of like blockers during the sprints. We won't have, you know, going, oh, well, we can't deliver this part of the feature because we didn't think about this other aspect that we need to implement or, you know, or even start writing code. And I've had this happen before at past companies where an engineer is implementing the thing. And then next thing you know it, he looks at the JIRA ticket and a PM changes the DOD. So now we're either ripping code out or making major modifications just to complete it. And it, it won't get completed because it keeps the scope keeps changing. Yeah, which, which is inevitable probably. But I think what you're saying is that, first of all, I really 
agree with the fact that it's good to take some time to plan and actually digest what's gonna happen which is like counterintuitive for some people because it's like wow but you are not developing in this time and we should never you know we should just focus on coding and not mm. planning because that's a waste of time and it's probably a meeting which basically is not work <laughs> yeah so yeah you're right it's like a loop that it's like an infinite loop like okay if you never plan if you never stop that's why we also, in my one of my previous guests, Joao Alves, who's uh, Portuguese, he was talking a lot about this need and this help of writing things down. What I also see, sometimes we, okay, we go to a meeting, we try to plan things out, but nobody writes it down. So then mm -hmm. before you actually go to the sprint where you will implement this, everybody will forget what you even agreed and why. Because he was saying a lot that this really helps you think and this really helps you consider different things and you know putting something in writing is like a superpower to 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 be able to write because people understand you know the same thing because you just have it written and then you can comment mm -hmm. on it so what do you think about this I, I i think i absolutely agree with them one of the things that we started doing in this uh backlog refinement was you know you know like this like this week we're identifying what stories need to be looked at for next sprint, which starts in you know three weeks. During that process, I, we try to get you know one one or two engineers to get eyes on that story, gather the technical details, write it out, and leave it on the Jira ticket, either as a comment or a part of the description. But basically, even if it's as small as we need to modify this file, this function within that file, that's great as long as we're thinking about it, writing it down, so that anyone who picks up that Jira story knows the technical details of along the lines of how it should be implemented or you know what it's going to entail. I don't know if that 100% is what he was mm -hmm. talking about, but I, I believe you said this earlier uh, in our conversation, during the design phase or even during implementation of the actual store, story, you know, we should be keeping a live design document, you know, either in Confluence or wherever you want to store it, even if it's on the repository as readmes, we just need to keep a live document that, that always changes with why we're making certain implementations. Why are we doing, you know, something a specific way so that if anyone does come and modify it or is curious, am I understanding what he was saying? So yeah, for sure. It's great to note everything. And I, I, I think, yeah, he, what he meant was like having some living documentation, but also knowing that we can go back to be, we are in remote. We can't just mm -hmm. have meetings for everything. And he was also saying, like, you can just have, like, you have an idea, you want to change some process or whatever, or like change some architecture probably in in the code. And then you go and what, present it to everyone one by one so they understand. And if you write it down and you really put like a lot of thought into how you express, so you make sure it's understandable. It's like a superpower because then it gets easier and easier to implement those new things and just go more async by having actually some documentation rather than just relying on your memory to remember stuff. Yeah, so that, that sounds to me like RFCs, um, something that I, I believe you and I have been pushing for a lot at uh, Philo, but that would solve a lot of those issues by, you know, one, it gives the engineer the ability to really think about what he wants to change or what he wants to implement. Think about what is the ROI, what is the blast radius of that change, and then 
you know, for me, what I look for in RFCs is really thinking of, do you have multiple approaches and what are the pros and cons of those approaches? And along with it, what is the risk or what is the engineering time needed to complete such, such a change? And then that would give us, you know, the ability to async, get eyes on it. Everyone has time to digest it. Everyone has time to think about it. Most RFCs, I would say, should have a POC attached to it. Not just, you know, in theory, it should work, or in theory, this will improve our performance, but provide a POC. Like here's a, you know, a small proof that what I'm asking to change or what we're asking to do, it will actually provide a benefit to the company, save us um, either engineering time or perform like increased performance, but provide the ROI that architects or team leads can go, okay, you've done your due diligence. Everyone has had a say into it. Everyone has pointed out their concerns or their approval. And, you know, then we can make decisions based off of uh, that. And then also it gives you like paper trail. It, you know, if someone comes in later or a new architect comes in or a new team lead two years down the road, if they, I, I mean, I've joined companies now, I've always asked this question to myself, why was this implemented this way? You can go back and be like, oh, this is their thought process, but you can go, well, requirements A, B, and C change. So now you can do an RFC on why you would want to change it again and provide, you know, details of saying, well, because back then we were under this assumption, now it changed so let's make another change. That's awesome because actually I'm smiling because uh, when I was talking to Joao, it, it was episode number five. He was actually the person who introduced RFC request for comments to me when we work together back in my taxi free now. And uh, yeah, and that's great that you just made it, you know, made it up yourself in your mind because yeah, that's actually the point. And that's a great thing to have. It's like, Right, right, right now I'm working with the teams to create their working agreements. And it's very similar for me because imagine somebody new joins a team and it takes them a lot of time to understand, okay, how they do this, how they do that, why they do this, why they do that. And then you just present them with a list of, okay, hey, these are, these are our working agreements. You can see when we're doing dailies and what's the why we're doing in this way and it gives so much value and understanding for the new people right i mean also existing people you know if you have multiple teams or most most companies you know we have teams that are siloed and don't have that great of coordination especially when you're working with like global teams yeah like it's great for onboarding it's great for new people coming on board to understand and you know the why's and how things were implemented but it also provides you know architects, team leads, other engineers on other teams, understanding, you know, the platform that they work in every day on the changes that are being made and they can go back. I mean, I, I definitely work on things and that I write and I come back a month later, I'm like, why was it written this way? And then I get blame it. And I'm like, well, I'm, I'm the one to blame. And I'm, I, I, I don't leave my own paper trail. And you know, I, I, I asked myself like, why did I write it that way? I, I don't remember the, you know, the current requirements. I mean, not just Confluence documentation, like uh, RFCs, but like leaving comments. Like one thing that I've been trying to get uh, my team to do is when they have conversations with our architect, Amehai, or other teams about how they're going to implement a certain user story, what I've been pushing for is please leave a comment in that story on the outcome of that conversation because it gets lost and it, now it's in that engineer's head. Mm -hmm. But when they go ahead and implement and merge their merge request, 
if you come back and you go, oh, why was this done that way? They're going to lose it because, you know, they're going to switch their context to the next user story. And now they're digging through Slack or whatever communication tool that they're using, but they're going to be searching for it and having those conversations. And even if it's not a living document in the confluence as documentation, leave it in this user story as a comment of the outcome of certain conversations will leave a better paper trail on why certain decisions were made. Makes a lot of sense. And I'm thinking right now, since you mentioned an architect, that you're kind of an architect for the team. I don't mean in the technical way, but like in processes and the organizational way, right? Because you can, you design, like you have a vision for what you would like the team to be, probably. And then it's on you to make, for example, there are the RFCs or there are other good development practices that you would like to say, well, I would like the team to try. So I would like to understand how do you do that? If you have, because you just mentioned a lot of practices that we would like to do, use, you, your head is full of ideas. So could you explain how you are taking, because now as a team lead, it's different. You were, you used to be an individual contributor. You could just give an idea and they could take it or leave it, right? But right now that you are in a leadership and managing position, how do you do that? So it's not like, like, oh, you have to do this. It's more like, hey, I have this idea. What do you think about it? Yeah. So funny enough, uh, backlog refinement that I implemented, you know, we're doing it once a week, going through the backlog, trying to, you know, gather the technical details before we go into sprint planning. That was a decision that I made that I felt we need to start designing user stories before we get to them. Now, we did that for two sprints and just in our recent retro, we decided as a team that it was a waste of 30 minutes. We were doing it asynchronously through Slack and we were doing it really well. And we decided, hey, we don't need an extra meeting. We're gonna stop doing this. So for me, how I see it is that I come, I do come up with ideas, but at the end of the day, it's a team. And in our retros, you know, I try to, we try to like ask like, what could we do better and how could we do it? And if someone comes up with an idea or I come up with an idea, we, we can try it for a sprint. If it doesn't work, we trash it and move on. It, it's weird because you, you mentioned like architect protecting like processes, but it's how I see it is identifying a problem, throwing a bunch of things at the wall and see what sticks and then try them. And if it doesn't work as a team, because what works for our team might not like might work for the EU team, Mm -hmm. but, and then also what, or vice versa. So it's trying to figure out what works for the actual team. You don't like make people do something. You just throw ideas and what sticks sticks. Yeah. I I, I don't make anyone do anything. I might, I might push for something to try and then bring up and say, does, how does everyone feel about this? Like after we did it for a couple of weeks, you know, making that like executive quote unquote decision of like, Hey, we're going to try this, but then everyone has to agree that they see you benefit in it because I, I kind of took that from Ford Rock. I took that from every, they call them seasons. So every three sprints, the squads changed. So you're working with a completely new bunch of people. And one of the things that I really liked was that when the squads changed as a team, you elected a squad leader. And then as a group, you decided what ceremonies you're going to do. You decided, you know, what processes you're going to do, you know, how we're going to do refinement planning. As long as we commit to the work that we need to commit to for 
that's quote unquote season, we had the autonomy to make the decisions for our actual squad. I felt why that worked so well was because there was no true, I'm going to use the word dictator, but no, no one managing and saying you have to do X, Y, and Z, giving the power a little bit to your team to make sure that, Hey, do you agree with daily standups? Do you agree with weekly backlog refinements? Do you, do you see benefit in it? And if everyone agrees that there's no benefit or there is a benefit, that's what's going to make your team efficient. Not, you know, at the organization level saying all teams must do this because what works for me doesn't work for everyone else. Okay, so that's where you came with all this uh, inclination towards self-organization of the teams. And we go back to what we were speaking about, Harry and motivation, right? It's totally different motivation when you, you have a say in how you will do your work, right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, I agree with that completely. And I, I think what you're doing is basically you're selling your ideas as experiments to the team. And then they have a say to say like, okay, this works for us or this, this doesn't really work because of that and that. And then we can iterate and have another idea. So no harm. <laughs> like, yeah, right? yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, of course, there's always a balance of giving too much control to everyone because as, as long as we can, everyone knows what they need to accomplish. Everyone knows how, what they're working on fits into the greater picture and in my mind, a team lead helps them glue those pieces together so that they understand the bigger picture of not just what they're working on within the team affects other people within the team, but also how does our pieces fit into the greater platform that other teams are working on and identifying where we need collaboration, where we need fo more focusing on gluing those pieces, like bringing those pieces into the team and make sure the team understands. <clears throat> so I feel like, you know, the team lead is the architect to bring all the unknowns together for the team and allowing them to handle what they need to handle, you know, on the individual level of implementation and doing their work, but just being there once again, to make sure that they have everything that they need to accomplish their tasks and being there as a more of a, more of a, I, I would say more of a support, leading them by supporting them okay. might be a best way to say it. Very nice way to say it. Yeah. You know, yeah. Of course, like, you know, if there's juniors or mid-level engineers, of course you need to mentor them and help them level up their skills. But for the most part, our team is full of seniors and seniors don't like to be micromanaged. They don't like to be, they shouldn't have to have their hands held and just more of like trust that we're paying good money for them, for their experience trust them yeah I, I love that and i i like the part i heard this a lot i don't know if there's a term for this glue work you know it's like a instead of team lead you could be just like a glue manager because in the end i heard this so many times so i think it makes really sense because in the end what you're doing is you're providing with context right because i exactly. think what you need to, for the people to understand is so they understand the intent behind what we are doing. I really like that part. The Martin Dimeline, popular in the product realm, and he's writing a book on, on sprint goals. There is this commander's intent behind a goal when you go to like a war or in the military. And for me, it actually made sense. It's not just that you put like, this is your goal. Okay, mm -hmm. this is my goal. I like to have a goal and it really is helpful. But if I don't understand why the goal is there, you might go 
and do something totally wrong because you are fulfilling the goal. And maybe meanwhile, the conditions changed. And if you knew what's the context and why you are mm -hmm. heading toward that goal, you might have foresee, you know? So I yep. think this is, this is very important and this is great because then your job is more to provide this context to people and then they can really self-organize within the boundaries that are set for them. Just to finish on this subject, have you ever used your position to actually command something like you have to do this full stop? Well, that's, have I? Because I can imagine this can also sometimes be the case. I, I'm also thinking about like, what would be the reason that you have to do this this way? But well, I'm the boss. I, I, I don't think it was ever commanding. Uh, okay. It was just more of like, so I would say no to the mm -hmm. question just because as a team lead, I haven't had to, you know, quote unquote, put your foot down on certain things. I think that I have stepped into a position where I have said no to certain design implementation, but I contribute that to being in a senior engineer role, not just a team lead, but like, you know, listening to like a senior, like if it was another senior engineer saying, like hey, this lead. is not like more of a tech lead than a management type uh, mm -hmm. commanding. It, it's, it was just more of like, I, I have not been in a position where I've had to use the position to dictate, you know, what was going on. Like a lot of the stuff has been collaboration as a team. A lot of stuff has been, there's stuff like behind the closed doors of like the one-on-ones, of course, asking people to be more available or making sure that, hey, you need to work on certain aspects within their career. But other than that, I would, I would say no. I mean, I've definitely have commanded as, from a senior perspective, but not as a team lead yet, no. Okay. So before we go, I always do like two last questions that are always the same. But before we go there, I would like to ask you like one last question. In your transition to become a team lead, is there anybody or anything that helped you? Like, do you rely on somebody that is like coaching or mentoring you? Or do you have, well, maybe you read an article so and read a book or something that really you think could be helpful for other leaders? I I've definitely have been trying to read more articles. I, I don't have any specific in mind um, mm -hmm. that stood out to me, but I do have a mentor, you know, Robert uh, Husick. This would be my fourth company working with him. It it's very helpful having him available to reach out and be like, hey, you know, I'm dealing with this issue with this engineer, you know, he brought up his concerns in the one-on-one, -on -one, like, how would you handle it? Or kind of just getting feedback on how do you handle certain situations? Because the one thing as an individual contributor, I never had to worry about was people's personal lives. Of course, I became friends with engineers and I've like, they're great colleagues, but I never had to really give much thought to what's going on in their lives, what, what's stressing them, are they feeling burnt out, just all these, a whole nother layer of the, you know, the psychological of, level, yeah, the psychological right? and doing reviews and stuff like that. So it's been very helpful having Robert there to support me by he doesn't tell me. And I think a lot of ways I get my management skills from him just because, you know, he's very transparent. He gives his opinion, but he doesn't dictate. He doesn't like directly tell you, you need to do this. He just, you know, says his opinion and then 
basically leaves it at that. Like, even though there's sometimes that I want more, I want to be like, no, give me, give me a direction. He does leave it on the table to be interpreted the way that I will interpret it and handle it. And usually it's always, I mean, I would not say usually I'm always, it's always been the like best advice, but I do think that I pull a lot of my experiences having him as my manager and I try to incorporate that into my position. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Robert is really great leader and especially, you know, that part of him dealing with so many different cultures, people, and he's always in a good mood and he always has nothing, something good to say. And even though he can get like really nervous or like unhappy and he's very straightforward, which is very funny for me. Uh, But then you you can never get offended by the way he no. says something that's like some people would like my brand explode yeah. and somebody said a bad word but he would do it in a way that you just laugh with him <laughs> instead of yeah him, it, right? yeah it's it's interesting because he like like i said he's transparent but he's straight to the point he doesn't beat around any corners he he doesn't do it in a way that comes off as aggressive but i guess it could you say maybe maybe the phrase would be like when he says something like it just has a lot of weight behind it mm-hmm. like it having the technical expertise behind it now he he can get into like the weeds of code and debugging and troubleshooting and he doesn't like lead by how should I phrase it like when I said leading by support like leading with mm-hmm. support um I think underlying I do get that from him because he doesn't come to me or comes to the team as like hey there's a production issue like hey you guys need to figure it out right now he would get in the weeds, he would troubleshoot, he would look at the code, he would be pointing out, could it be this or this? So he's leading by supporting us and not just saying, go fix it. He's like, I'm going to help you. But, you know, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I really need to interview Robert because he has a lot of great things. I also work with him the second time already. And it's great to have such a mentor in whichever role we are in totally different roles Mm -hmm. and we get the same mentor. In any role, it's just a great tip for anybody who is looking to become a manager or a leader. Even individual contributor and like getting ahead in the career, it's just great to find somebody who can support you. And I really yep. like what you said, like leading by supporting people. It's really cool. Well, there will be many quotes from this conversation. Perfect. <laughs> so thanks for that. And last but not least, the two questions. So first one, we I think we touched on it right now. I usually ask what would be your tip for a first-time manager? So somebody that is just considering whether I should go and be a manager or I should keep on being technically involved more what would you say when somebody gets into a role of managing people what would be the tip apart maybe it's what we just said like finding a mentor or maybe something else also like how not to get overwhelmed you know for me I like juggling different pieces I really love being like very logical and like yeah I'm really good at just juggling a lot of things but as a tip no, it's, it's okay. Maybe it's it's one of the things. You will be juggling many things, so you better like it. Yeah. Well, yeah. A lot of meetings. Ugh. Way too many meetings. <laughs> like, there, there is a tip that I have in my mind, but I'm trying to figure out how to articulate it. Focusing on, like, the technical aspects of being a team lead, but also really listening and paying attention to what your engineers are saying. And I would say the tip is, like, to always 
remember that it is a team. It's not, you're not the captain. It's, it is a team collaboration and that what others are saying is very important to how well your team runs. Thank you. And last one, especially now that we are in a remote, which for you apparently was the reality for years already. But how do you see the leadership role evolving, you know, given that you don't get to meet those people in real life? Or, you know, we have also the Generation Z coming in that are totally different than what we were millennials, or at least I was. So how do you see this evolving? What skills will be needed for leaders, leaders of the future? I don't know. I've, I've, I've been working in this remote role for so long with like managers being mm-hmm. remote as well. Uh, yeah, I would say, you know, something that I don't do enough of is turning on the camera, you know. <laughs> yeah, maybe, I know. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I do think that, you know, most people, especially in this industry, are used to working with remote teams. And even if you're in the office or at home, are familiar with doing things over Google Meet, Zoom. Um, so I would say more uh, camera on time and more, you know, taking taking time before stand-up or before meetings and having that small talk, talking about the weekends and trying to connect on a personal level because it's very easy to be just work colleagues working remote it's easy to disconnect and be like oh it's the weekend i'm not going to communicate with you or you know no i'm not going to ask how your weekend was so i feel like connecting on that personal level more and getting to know them will help a long ways because then it, it becomes fun to work with people if that answers that question yeah yeah that answers it perfectly thank you for that i agree and i'm the one to tell everyone to actually put their camera on <laughs> you know that know. yourself so I agree I've with been, your tip. I've been doing it for one-on-ones, just so you know. Good yeah. to know, because for me, that's the strangest moment when I go into one-on-one with somebody and they won't turn their camera on, you know? And sometimes you actually, even I, I would ask sometimes and sometimes I would not even ask because I'm like, I feel like I'm like crossing some boundary with somebody that they obviously don't want to turn it on. And just by me asking, I'm like pushing them to do something they don't want. I I feel like there's a little, there is one disconnect though, right? Like, I don't know what time it is there, but it's late in the afternoon, right? It's 5 p.m. So usually like on some calls, it's 8 a.m. Most engineers just roll out of bed. So it's like, of course, like if if it's noon or three o'clock, I will absolutely turn my camera on. But at 8 a.m., I'm not ready. I'm like drinking my coffee. I'm probably just got on the call without doing my hair or anything. No makeup. Oh, my God. Yeah. I mean, got to look presentable. (laughs) But yeah, I think once it was you or Mark who said that to me. I was like, oh, my God, I never thought about this. That, you know, you are in your pajamas probably. (laughs) And it's like, I'm not even at my desk yet. I'm just listening to like a meeting that there is. So yeah, I I can imagine. But I think it's just good to maybe have people just say like, hey, sorry, I'm not putting my camera because of this other. And then it's totally Mm -hmm. different than if I'm like, you know, people can get personal. These are kind of stuff that you think like, oh, they don't like me. They don't want to show my, their face to mm-hmm. me. They are actually laughing at me and not. Do people <laughs> really think that? No, I'm not. Well, sometimes uh, I do, <laughs> you know, because especially at the beginning when you don't know people, you don't know. Yeah. And of course, yeah. we tend to have these worst scenarios. Yeah, <laughs> no, I, I feel like it, I, I, I do think that it depends on the call. 
I think one-on-ones and stand-ups probably should have majority of the people with the cameras on. But you know, at the ad hoc ones or, you know, doing retro and stuff like that, where people might be writing stuff down or Googling ideas while we're talking about design implementation, like Like there is a need there, there is certain calls that I, yeah, I can see that there's an expectation of having that personal connection and by turning on our cameras, but at the same time, there's calls that don't require it. And uh, without this being on any recording, I mean, there, there's plenty of times where I'm not like, there's meetings that are not beneficial to me and I'm completely ignoring the meet. I'm working on something. I'm not participating, but at the same time, that, that also highlights a big problem. Like I forgot who quoted this, but it's like, if you're not contributing to the meeting or getting anything out of it, why are you on that call? Yeah, the, the, the famous law of two feet, right? Use your two yeah. feet and go away, which was in the time that we were in the office. But right now I also agree because I would prefer not to have somebody and tell, like say, but you know, it's so hard to say to people, you know what, your meeting is useless for me like I don't of course you won't say it in this so you would say to somebody hey I really don't find much value for myself on this meeting so I will just drop like who would say that that. right no exactly so I think but I think also it's it is a bit about being courageous you know one of the values is always like being courageous and I think it would be to just tell the person in person not like in private on slack like hey on that meeting, I think maybe you have some other ideas, but I think it would be profitable because, you know, especially I identify with that a lot because I'm like the meeting person. Like my work mm-hmm. doesn't count if there's no meeting. So yeah. I would appreciate really from people to say, hey, Maria, I was on this meeting. I think we could do it a bit differently. I don't really think we need that meeting, you know? And then it's like, okay, I've never thought about this because I'm always in this facilitator role. Yeah. It's hard to put myself in the shoes and in get some other perspective. I try, but I not always succeed. Yeah. But that goes back to, you know, developing trust with the person enough for them to be able to tell you the hard truth sometimes. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So that's a very nice note to finish our meeting where we actually turned on our camera. For I'll be better at it. <laughs> I appreciate that. So thank you so much for joining. I really enjoyed uh, and I got a, a lot of great quotes. You were making my life easier because then I put the quotes somewhere like on Instagram and LinkedIn, you know, and you had so many quotes that I already pointed them here. <laughs> and that was great. I hope we get to talk more in in the future of this podcast and also at Philo. (laughs) Yeah, thank you. It was a great conversation. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye.